chapter 25. So, um, here's a fun fact. This month marks two significant anniversaries for Amy and I. The first off, uh, first of all, this past Friday marked 16 years since Amy and I said, I do. Actually, we may have said, I will. I haven't watched the tape in a while. Uh, Around the time we were preparing for the wedding, we figured that our marriage would be um, a good time. The wedding would be a good time to start becoming involved in a fresh church community, though. And I had an intern at Grace Fellowship at that time, and Amy, um, with Amy, um, and that ended uh, around 2002. Uh, After that, Amy and I served together in the kids kids ministry for another year, alongside uh, Mark Kendall Ludwig. And now, I'm not recommending that all of you do this, but after we got married, we thought it was time for a change. So we settled into a church, we settled into like church shop for a while. Our our first stop was this new church plant uh, that Grace had launched in Owings Mills. It was a small church meeting in a movie theater called New Hope Community Church, which was being pastored at the time by my friend Jason Poling. Uh, and that was July 27, 2003, the Sunday after Amy and I returned from our honeymoon. And um, 832 Sundays later, we really haven't looked back. Um, because we were so involved at, at GFC, Amy and I wanted to take a year after we were married to just be married and not get into serving too heavily right at the beginning. This uh, we did do, and I would recommend that. I would recommend it to other married couples. We spent this first year uh, building into our marriage this idea that worship was a non-negotiable part of Sunday mornings for us. Even when we were traveling, we we tried to attend worship services somewhere if we could. So last week, uh, we worked it into our vacation to attend North Point Community Church in Atlanta, and and Amy even got to say good morning to Andy Stanley. After that first year, though, we started looking around at how we could get plugged in at New Hope. The church had a vibrant kids' ministry, but since we had done that at GFC, we figured that it would be good to kind of change things up. I was a semi-competent guitar player, and Amy was a vocalist, so we auditioned for the music team. Uh, I remember driving out to Russ Decker's house one afternoon uh, to audition for uh, the worship team for, for Colin McGue and Rob Hobson, you know, New Hope heavyweights. I'd never been a professional-grade musician, but music was one of the earliest things that made me kind of wake up to God's presence and his movement in my life, even, even in regards to, to, to the role that secular music played in my life. I was in middle school when I first started listening to the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, and, and something kind of like woke up inside of me. It, it was almost like God reminded me through this music that you've got a spirit. It woke up something in me that had been asleep. And I didn't know it at the time, but that love of music was a powerful gift that God continues to use to this day to guide me. I'd played the saxophone since the fifth grade, but by the time I got to high school, being a part of the school band was what God used to keep me out of trouble. 
I gave my life to the music program at Parkville High School. And through that, I made friends who would turn out to be invaluable in years to come and even introduced me to a soprano named Amy Forster. Saxophone playing was fun, but I got my first guitar from my dad for Christmas in 1996. And once I got that smoke on the water riff down, it was all downhill from there. Uh, my, my dad taught me to play, and that turned into kind of like the healing that was needed in our relationship. I, I would go over his apartment because my parents were divorced at the time, and we'd play like Eric Clapton tunes on his porch, and we'd listen to songs that I'd listen to songs that he wrote. And in time, that time playing the guitar together, uh, the brokenness that existed in our father-son relationship evaporated, and forgiveness became so much more attainable. Playing music together allowed us to spark conversations and build a healthy relationship that continues to this day. That was, there was about five minutes after high school that I thought that I might like to build a career around music, but it never turned into anything. There still, there I was with this precious gift from God that kind of sat in my soul waiting to be invested in his kingdom. Music was a precious gift that God had entrusted to my care. So I passed the audition at New Hope, and I said, yeah, I'll I'll play the guitar for the worship team. And playing the guitar turned into leading worship time, and leading worship time led me to become a house church leader, which led me to be asked to head up the new youth group, which led me to be asked to join the church staff as a volunteer, which led me to be brought on as the associate pastor, and then the next thing I knew, Jason joined the priesthood, and I was now New Hope's pastor, all because I said, yeah, I'll play the guitar. The thing was that the key was that I had tasted the fruit of what using this gift meant to my life at large. Repeatedly, I listened to music, played music, joined bands, saw live concerts. I saw that following that passion led to catalyst for my faith and improvement in my character. And now, when I finally got the opportunity to do what I loved in the context of the local church, it felt natural. You see, I think that powerful things can happen when we stop looking at our talents and our passions as our own personal possessions and instead start looking at them as gifts from God that he has entrusted to our care. So what is it for you? Maybe it's a talent for business. Maybe you're an entrepreneur or or like a small business owner. What would it look like for you to start looking at your talent for business as God's gift, not yours? How would that affect your business choices? How would it affect your drive for excellence? How would it affect your service to your customers? How would it affect your relationship to your employees? How would it, what would it look like if you woke up in the morning and said, you know, God, this really isn't my gift. This is your gift. It's God's gift entrusted to my care. How would that affect your yes? How would it affect your no? How would it affect your risk-taking? Turn with me to, to Matthew 25. There you'll find a parable told by Jesus that speaks on this very issue. Speaking in, uh, starting in verse 14, uh, this is a parable of the talents. Um, and like all parables, this primary goal is to teach us something 
about God's kingdom. Jesus taught that his father's kingdom was breaking in right here in the midst of this world. He taught that his kingdom was at hand, that it was within your grasp. He taught his disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. So lots of us, are, I think, are watching the, the new season of Stranger Things, where, where this, this show where uh, an upside-down dimension is breaking into Hawkins, Indiana. And it's a neat analogy for God's kingdom because um, about 30 years ago, actually, the, the, the author Donald Craybill, a Mennonite pastor in Pennsylvania, actually wrote a book called The Upside-Down Kingdom. It's a good book. Now, in Stranger Things... The upside down breaks in and causes havoc and destruction on like a small town. In the New Testament, the upside down kingdom still breaks in to cause havoc and destruction, but in a really good way, in a revolutionary way, in a way that will use redemptive sacrificial love to transform this world into one under God's eternal rule and reign. So so Jesus uses parables short stories, to talk with his disciples and others about what it's going to be like when God's kingdom breaks into earth. So Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, and to another two, and another one to each according to his ability, and then he went away. Again, a crucial aspect of this parable right off the bat is that the gifts given to the servants are the master's property. The other thing to mention here is that the gifts were extraordinarily precious. So a talent was a large sum of money. It, it would have taken the average day laborer 15 to 20 years before they earned enough to add up to a talent. In fact, our English word talent, meaning skills or abilities, is actually derived from this parable. There's, um, that's, who, that's how precious our talents are in the eyes of God. So this first servant is given five talents, which was an outrageous amount of money. The second servant is given two, and the third is given one, which are still large sum of money. Um, and in today's money, we could, we could say that like the first guy was given $2.5 million. Uh, the second guy was given a million dollars, and the third guy was given a half million dollars. We're, we're told that each of these men were given talents according to his ability. So evidently, this master... He trusted these men quite a bit, or at least he felt that entrusting the money to them was the right thing to do. It's clear that the master knew his servants, but did the servants know their master? Continuing in verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. And he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. So now, at this point in the story, the first man has ten talents. And the second guy has four talents. 
Something, um, sometimes it can be hard to see what others can do with their talents. When I say that I felt a passion for music, I don't mean that I expected to be some remarkable virtuoso or the next, you know, Jack White, Jimmy Page or something. I mean that I loved music according to my own ability. Could I sharpen that skill and become a better guitar player? Sure. But I held no delusions or expectations that the gift itself would be the only thing that would increase in blessing. See, I didn't play the guitar merely because I wanted to play more and become a better player. As I played the guitar, I realized that the return on my investment turned into things far greater than music. But sometimes we can get intimidated by others' gifting to the point that we use that as an excuse to not even try. We sell well. We say, well, I can't sing as well as her, so I should probably not even sing at all. No, our talents are according to our ability. And when we take that risk and step out in faith to use them, our response isn't how great our skill is. It's our faithfulness to God's work in us. So maybe this third guy was so intimidated by the large sum of money his fellow servants had made that he hid when he was given uh, he, that he hid what was given away. Of course, the thing is, the text doesn't say anything about him hiding his own money. The text says he hid his master's money. This was money given to him for the purpose of bearing fruit. The time from when the master left to when the to when the time comes that the master came back, was never supposed to be a delay. This time, it was never supposed to be like a time of inactivity where the servants could sit until the day that their master came home and then the real work would begin. No, the entire time the master was gone was supposed to be an opportunity. Instead, this third man stuffed it down where it couldn't see the light of day, and he waited for his master to take it off his hands. Picking up in verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents here. I have made five talents more. He said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful uh, over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The the message translates that line, good work, you did your job well. From now on, be my partner. Did you notice that both of those guys who doubled their money, they both doubled their money, um, that both of the, the responses to each of those guys from the master was exactly the same. The master didn't give any more praise to the guy who handed him ten talents than he did to the guy who handed him four. 
They were both uh, given talents according to their ability, and they were rewarded according to their faithfulness to use those gifts for the purpose in which they were entrusted. In the context of this parable, that meant using money to trade and, and to make more money, but that's really, this parable really isn't about money. It's about acknowledging that the talents never really were yours to begin with and using them for the purposes they were given to you. In 1 Peter 4, it says, As each received a gift, uh, has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So one point before we move on. Just because we're insisting that our gifts belong to God doesn't mean that they aren't still going to bring you joy. Both of these guides were told to enter into the joy of their master. The ultimate fruit of using our gifts is marrying our purpose to God's purpose and finding joy in that place. You see, I may have decided that playing the guitar and leading worship and preaching are gifts that God had given to me for the purpose of ministering to you all, but that doesn't mean that I haven't really had a great time doing it over the years. I think that the place where our passions meet God's purpose is holy ground. Let me say that again. I think that the place where our passions meet God's purpose is holy ground. But then there's this third guy. Picking up in verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have scattered no seed. Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. Parable gets pretty dark pretty quick. So let's back up here, and let's mention something that I probably could have mentioned right from the start. I think if we look at the context of where this parable falls in Matthew's gospel, we see that ultimately Jesus is talking about Israel. I know it's late in the sermon to bring something so foundational, but bear with me for a moment. This parable comes late in Matthew's gospel, just before Jesus calls the disciples to the upper room for the Last Supper. In previous chapters, He had lamented over Jerusalem, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. 
see your house is left desolate. That's from Matthew 23. And the vast majority of that chapter is filled with lamenting language towards the scribes and the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites. Hypocrites who had buried the precious gift of God's law inside useless religion. Then after some severely apocalyptic language in chapter 24, now we get chapter 25 and these two parables that deal with the coming of the Lord and His kingdom. Israel was given the precious talent of being God's chosen people, chosen not to hide their blessing away in order that they might be a blessing in and to themselves, but rather to use their blessings as a means to bless the whole world. And they had failed at that mission. And now God was in their midst, and he was ready to put things to right. He planned to put an end to the law as the people of God had had it before, and that meant fulfilling it in the presence and the person of Jesus Christ. So what's the first move of the third servant? It's to blame the master making him into some hard businessman and accept no responsibility for himself. And he shoves this talent that his master had entrusted him with back at him and he continues to live the life of a servant rather than the life of a partner. You see, the danger of making this parable merely about spiritual gifts is that we can lose track of the truth that Jesus was the good and faithful servant in whose joy we enter into. It was because he was faithful to his master's mission that we enter into his father's kingdom. And now, through that lens, we can ask, well, what have we been entrusted with? What kingdom gifts have we been entrusted with? Musical ability, business ability, technical skill, sure. All of those things and much, much more. But, but in a more eternal sense, we are the church. And the church is the servant that has been entrusted with the message of the kingdom and the proclamation of the gospel. We've been given the keys to the kingdom and the truth that in Christ alone there is redemption, reconciliation, restoration. In Christ alone, he is our cornerstone. He has given us and welcomed us into new creation. The question before us this morning is what are we going to do with that precious talent? Are we going to bury it away, or are we going to use it for the purpose that we were given it? Are we going to open our doors, proclaim the gospel, share with others in, in ways that, that Amy mentioned before, through our loves, like as um, St. As Francis is attributed to saying, uh, we preach the gospel, we use words if we absolutely have to. You know, this afternoon, we're going to pause here and... Um, close up uh, our worship time this morning, and then go to uh, Reed and Cindy Nichols' house for a baptism. And I think that um, I'm just so excited about seeing these three individuals who've, uh, who've come forward uh, and asked to be baptized. Um, and I think that what they're seeing and the kind of the, the theology and the thinking of baptism that we have is that the, the precious talent, the, the thing that they've been entrusted with is their entire life. And these individuals have said, you know what, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to give my whole life and invest it back 
into God. I'm going to vest it back into God's kingdom. And so we'll pause there as the worship team comes back up um, and we'll pick things back up in the Nichols backyard. But for now, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the good and faithful work that you're doing at, at New Hope Community Church. I praise you for, for Dawn and for Brian and for Joey who have come forward and asked to be baptized today. Father, I just, um, I just love you so much, and I love them. And we just want to be a community that builds our life on your love, that builds the life of our congregation on your love, that, that when we love you, that looks like us loving each other. And when we love each other, that looks like us loving you as we live this kingdom reality, as we proclaim this gospel. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ.